Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today to talk about tax-efficient investing is Steve Austin. Steve is a founder and a partner at American Revitalization Company. That's an asset manager with a mission of preserving historically important real estate and businesses throughout the country. Steve, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Excited to be here. So we're going to cover a lot today, Steve. We're going to talk about ESOPs, uh, historical preservation. I want to start talking about conservation easements because the strategy that you're implementing kind of came out of some changes made recently to conservation easements. And a lot of the background of uh, you and some of your partners is in conservation easements. So let me start asking you to give an overview. What are conservation easements? How do they work? Or at least how did they work? Um, and and mm-hmm. why were they so attractive to high net worth investors? Yeah, sure. So um, a conservation easement is when you put a permanent protection on the deed of the property to prevent it from ever being developed. Um, so it's conservation easements have been around for, for a very, very long time, you know, decades um the the you know the the act that kind of solidified them in in 2015 made made that a permanent uh part of the tax law where now individuals could start taking charitable deductions for their lost development rights right so if i had a family farm or a family ranch and um you know typically when we we have those legacy types of you know green spaces um the the economics just aren't really there, unfortunately, for the family, especially the second and third generations when they inherit those. So they're always they tend to be looking for options to raise capital. And you know, unfortunately, most of them are forced to sell those properties. But a lot of them, you know, through good good tax counsel, they 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 stumble across the you know, the the conservation easement aspects of the tax code, which allow them to take that property, determine what the highest and best use development of the property could have been. And if I was a developer and I was going to build a, you know, a luxury you know, uh, uh, apartment community or a luxury you know, home community or you know, a golf course or an amusement park or an RV park or whatever the case may be for that piece, particular piece of property, the charitable deduction in the tax code was based on the delta between what it would cost me to develop that property and what it would value for once it was stabilized. And that's what the, the tax code has always referred to as the highest and best use. And that, that's always been the approach for determining the amount of those charitable deductions. So that's why it became very uh, popular with high net worth individuals, because, you know, uh, especially in you know, some of these projects in the Southeast where you see a lot of aggregate mining, you know, a lot of, you know, different types of rock, limestone, shale, whatever the case may be, um, you can generate a particularly high valuation on, you know, a thousand acre tract of farmland. And Mm -hmm. um, by doing that, you know, um, asset managers were able to partner with the landowner and offer that in a fractional way out to investors, right? So as an investor, I could put in, you know, $50,000 
and receive a charitable tax deduction to offset up to 50% of my annual income. And it was very common for that charitable deduction to be anywhere from four to six times my investment. So, you know, 200 to $300,000 charitable deduction for my $50,000 investment. And so it was a very attractive, you know, opportunity for, for your typical, you know, high income earner, people who don't have a lot of tax deductions, especially, you know, um, folks that work as W-2 employees, you know, a lot today, a lot of physicians are now W-2 employees and they make, you know, significant incomes, but they don't have all the, the tax write-offs that a typical business owner might be able to take advantage of. Um, we deal with a lot of tech workers and so forth. So that's kind of what a, a, a conservation easement is, is it, it's taking that raw piece of land and preserving it, ensuring that it can never be developed into the future, um, which obviously is good for the environment and, and for, you know, the, the local, you know, ecosystems. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it provides people with access to a lot of green land. Right. So rather than than forcing, uh, I think you said that a lot of times that second generation, uh, giving them another option besides selling it to someone who's just going to develop it, um, yep. they can they can place that easement on it. Okay, so um, so this changed a little bit in 2022 with the signing of the omnibus uh, spending bill. It it put some restrictions in place. What what changed with that bill? And and I guess equally importantly, what didn't change uh, with that bill in 2022? Yeah, really good question, Michael. So what changed is because the IRS had been attacking these um, conservation easements, in particular, they didn't like uh, easements that had a multiple, meaning the you know charitable deduction was more than two and a half times the investor's basis in the investment, right? Those mm -hmm. are the ones that they have been uh, attacking. Congress actually took the action of putting a limit, a legal limit, which didn't ever exist before on that exact characteristic, right? So you're now legally limited to a deduction of two and a half times your investment unless you meet one of the exceptions. So for example, if, if, you, know, if you had a wealthy client who was selling a business and, and they wanted to go out and do uh, a conservation easement just for themselves, you know, there, there is no legal limit to their deduction. However, you know, all of your listeners, if they wanted to, you know, partner with an asset manager like us and, and, and participate in one of these conservation easements, they're legally limited at two and a half times their investment into the partnership. So that was the primary change. There's a few other exemptions that they, they, they placed in there for, for certain other classes. Um, what they also didn't change in, in, by not changing it, they actually also called it out as a protection in the omnibus bill is these historical preservations um, for any building that, that meets the National Park Service's requirements is, is listed on the National Registry with the, with the you know, uh, National Park Service. Any of these particular buildings are protected from, from the new law, meaning it still falls under the old law. So there is no legal mm -hmm. limit to the charitable deductions that you're able to take on these existing assets if you're preserving a historic building. So they um, they essentially specifically carved out that niche in, in the old law and said, we're not changing this, we're protecting this. So if, if you're an individual, you're still able to do a conservation easement. But what, it sounds like, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, what they cracked down on um, is syndications where investors would essentially pool their money um, and, and you'd get a fraction of the um, 
the charitable contribution flowing through to any one individual. Um, but but yeah, that's still that, a possibility with historical preservations of buildings. That's correct. That, yeah, that, that yeah. is correct. And, and, you know, the IRS likes to use that word syndication. I prefer the word democratization. But, you know, what they don't want is what they prevented in the new law is the fractionalizing of selling off those charitable benefits. Right. Sure. So a single individual, there is no limit. But as soon as you have, you know, unrelated parties in the in the transaction, now they put a legal limit on it, unless it's a historical building, which doesn't have any legal uh, limitations whatsoever. Got it. Okay, so so that's a good segue here. Let's let's move into uh, the historical preservation of buildings, which is you uh, as you just mentioned, provided that it meets certain requirements set forth, was relatively untouched and then in, in a way kind of blessed um, or, or preserved by this by the omnibus bill in, in 2022. So talk us through, Steve, how uh, how an investor or an asset manager such as ARC could uh, essentially uh, execute a tax efficient real estate investing strategy using uh, historic preservation easements on a building. Yeah, so the, the the core focus of of arc and, and our mission is to find these you know historic assets that are typically meaningful and significant in their local communities right so most of the the properties that we look at are going to be in kind of downtown urban markets where you do have a lot of upward development going on so if mm-hmm. you think about towns like a nashville like a charlotte like a raleigh durham you know birmingham alabama um, these are markets that are going through, you know, a lot of, you know, upward development. The building codes are being modernized to, you know, allow more dense development in these areas. But these towns have a lot of significant historic structures. And um, the National Park Service has a whole criteria. There's four different criteria, A, B, C, and D, on to, to how you qualify to get on the registry of, of you know, historic districts or historic buildings. Um, but, uh, you know, basically most of it's going to come down to architecture. It's going to come down to materials. It's going to come down to, you know, was there some sort of significant, um, you know, event in the history of, of the local community? Um, so once you find one of those assets, we, we look at it just like the, the lens of a developer. We, we look at say, hey, what, what's the maximum, you know, profit we could de- derive mm-hmm. from developing this, this asset? And, what would we do if we were, you know, a multi-billion-dollar developer? And um, you know, through that lens, you can determine, you know, what the highest and best use for the for the asset would be, and and you can you can determine what the the cost to build that is, and what the stabilized value would be. And there are, you know, very standard protocols for how to do that that are, have been widely accepted for for decades. And. Sure. Um, so that, that's kind of the the lens that we approach it with. So we find the assets that, that that are good quality assets. We're not, you know, we're not focused on a lot of rehabilitation. Not saying that we won't ever do that, um, but but really what we're looking for for our clients is we're looking to buy high quality existing assets. Uh, it might be a three story, you know, building. Now it might be apartments. It might be office. It might have you know mixed use with retail on the first floor, an office or or apartments above it. Um, so, so we, we kind of look at a few different asset classes. Um, but generally speaking, we're looking for that asset that's, you know, an asset that an investor would want to own that, that makes sense to own. Um, and, and ultimately 
what would the highest and best use of that asset be if we were developing it? And through that lens, we, we, we find the right assets and we permanently protect these you know, air rights and facades of these historic buildings by placing a deed of preservation on the building. And so just like in the conservation easement world, if I was doing a, you know, protecting a piece of raw land, our investors are going to reap that charitable deduction, which offsets up to 50% of their annual, you know, taxable income, uh, has a 15 year carry forward. Um, so it's, it's a very, you know, useful tool when it comes to tax planning and Got it. all we're, all we're giving up is the rights to develop the facade or air rights of the building. So the building will always stay intact. We can do whatever we want with the interiors of the buildings, but the facades of the buildings, um, you know, are protected permanently. Got it. So you're not you're not turning it into a museum. It can continue to run as what it was running right. before. You can add operational efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, to, to increase the tax flow. So, yeah. So I did, let me give a hypothetical example here, just to kind of illustrate this for the listeners. Let's say you buy a building for for ten million dollars, um, and you you do study. I don't know if you would do the study or if you'd hire a third company firm to do it, but you say. We could spend $100 million and build um, a, a massive multifamily apartment building here and it'd be worth $150. Um, so we've got something, if we, if we spend $100, it'd be worth $150. Therefore, the value is, is $50 million. By placing this historical preservation easement on this, this property, we can claim a charitable contribution of $50 million. Do I about have that correct? You do. Yeah, spot on. And, and so... Okay. Yes, we're we're always going to use third party architecture engineering firms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going to use third party market study groups to 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 kind of vet these projects, um, and and that's the due diligence that that we do that not all asset managers are going to do. But you know, we spend a lot of money on those you know third party relationships because we want to make sure that these things are airtight and not going to be challenged in court successfully. So we want to make sure that. You know, our investors aren't going to lose their deductions in five to seven years on some sort of, you know, technical footfalls. Right, right. And then that, uh, I think technically how it works is that uh, deduction flows through on a K-1, just like income or loss. Is, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. J just like the, the, you know, ongoing incomes and, and depreciations on the assets are going to flow through on the K-1, the, the charitable deduction flows through on the first year K-1, and that's about all they're going to see is their basis and their charitable deduction. Um, they might see a little bit of income flowing through depending on when in the year we buy the asset. But using your example, Michael, you know, you, you had that $50 million delta between mm -hmm. the cost to build the structure and the stabilized value. We take that $50 million charitable deduction and we've got to deploy $20 million of investor capital. Now, again, that's not the legal requirement. That's, that's our preference because we, we are trying to keep these uh, tax deductions at that two and a half to one threshold or less, just so that the IRS doesn't scrutinize these things heavily. Um, so, so we're okay. trying to take a very conservative approach in, in how we're doing these projects, not, not because we're legally required to, but because we're choosing to do so. Okay, so in the example that I gave, the, I said you bought the building for 10 million and you claimed a, a $50 million deduction. So that's actually 5X. And, and what you're saying is that um, in order to be conservative and to, to essentially lower, lower audit risk and comply with the, um, I, I guess the, the guidance that, that's been, been issued, keeping that below two and a half times, 
um, is your goal. So you've, you've got, I guess, another $10 million mm -hmm. that you would need to deploy in this example. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, and if okay. we're buying the building for, for 10 million and let's just for sake of conversation, say that includes all the due diligence fees and closing sure. costs and, and everything of that nature, we would then take that additional $10 million of assets and, and, and deploy that into a secondary asset class, which I don't know if you want me to get into that now, or if you want to come back. Yeah, to that let's later. do it. No, okay. let's do it. And so, so what we would do there is, is we would take that additional $10 million of capital and we would identify a, um, industrial manufacturing company. You know, typically these are going to be legacy companies owned by first or second generation business owners that just unfortunately, for whatever reason, don't have a succession plan in place. And, mm -hmm. you know, mo most of the time these business are, businesses are running very autonomously already. They, they have somebody kind of running the day to day and their sellers quasi retired. And they're just really looking to to find the right buyer so that you know they they don't lose that you know these employees mean a lot to them a lot a lot of times you'll see ten years you know from employees ten fifteen twenty years in some of these companies and you know so the sellers are, are you know very connected to their their staff and they they just want to make sure it goes to the right group sure. and that's where we come in so so we we take those you know profitable companies we're we're looking for companies that are doing EBITDAs in the one to five million range but I'd say we really probably focus in that one to three. And, um, you know, and, and we try and structure a deal that's, you know, very competitive with the market rates for, for the seller, but, you know, they're, you know, they understand, you know, our mission and, and how we plan to preserve these jobs in this company. And, and we're very upfront about our uh, exit timeline on this business. You know, we're going to buy a couple of these companies each year. We're going to make sure that they fit together well. We're going to enhance the operating margins like any you know good operator would, but ultimately we're going to sell them off in a single ESOP transaction to the employees. So ultimately, you know the two, three, four businesses that we buy, those sellers know that they're, they're kind of having their cake and, and eating it too because you know they're getting their cash on the liquidation, but they also know that their employees are going to be taken care of in you know in due time. Yeah, and so. That, that that becomes very attractive. Sure. So we're 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 talking about a size of firm here, the one to five, really one to three million in, in EBITDA here. Where I'm guessing there's not uh, a ton of competition. Like you're, you're probably not competing against the big private equity firms or you know publicly traded companies that are looking to. It, it's not going to move the needle yeah. for a lot of those firms, right? But they're they're nice, um, profitable. A lot of times established businesses that have, have been around for a while and have. Uh, have, have staying power, but uh, I'm guessing there's not a ton of options for um, the the sellers who are looking to, as you said, they're looking for a couple of things. They're looking to, to cash out and, and fund their retirement or, or put a little bit of money in their pocket, um, but also make sure that in a lot of cases, the, the business they've spent their life building uh, stays as a going concern and their employees continue to have a uh, place to work. Yeah, it, I think you're spot on there. That that generally is the theme of these transactions. Is you know we're not usually competing with a lot of buyers, if any, and it, and 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 a lot of in a lot of cases we we have to sift through you know the you know the listings, and we got to talk to a lot of business brokers and and yeah. get to the right the right businesses that have a good client mix, have good stable long term track records, good good leadership in place, good cultures. Um, cause there are a lot of them out there that, that aren't, 
you know, going to meet all of that due diligence. Um, but, but ultimately, yeah, we're, we're finding those companies. We're looking for, you know, companies that, that, you know, are, are kind of status quo businesses that, that haven't really had a, a high level professional ownership, you know, that, that you would see typically in the private equity space where we can take a couple of these pieces, put them together. We can consolidate some of the overheads and costs and drive better outcomes and, you know, put a little bit of growth capital into them and, and take them from, you know, 1 million to 2 million of EBITDA over the five-year trajectory before we sell them. Okay. So the plan is to buy a few of these. I think you said two, three, four of these. Uh, and, and essentially, is it is it a roll-up that you're describing? You're going to roll these up and sell it in, in one transaction? Or what's the what's the exit strategy for this side of the portfolio? Yeah, so so that's exactly right. It's going to be a roll up where we're going to look for companies that are synergistic, have you know common you know uh, customer relationships, or can cross sell into each other's customer bases, or provide complementary products and services. And that's going to just help us drive value in the overall portfolio. And then the exit strategy is, you know, like I said, we're going to put them all in together into one entity, one operating company, and then we're going to eventually sell it through an ESOP transaction, an employee stock ownership plan. And so the the reason we chose that exit is, you know, one of the other things the Omnibus bill uh, did is it, is it provided about $400 million to help the Department of Labor further um, the progress of, of these types of, you know, strategies where Instead of you know the money going directly to Wall Street, it's staying in the local communities, and you're 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 trapping that equity there at the local level um, through the ESOP transaction. Um, but generally speaking, the other reason we, we we chose the ESOP is you know beyond the fact that we want to build you know high quality em- employers in these communities that that we're targeting, we really wanted to make sure that we provided a tax efficient exit strategy for our investors. And the ESOP allows us to do that because each individual investor can make a 1042 election. And so a 1042 works very similar to a 1031. 1031s are a lot more well-known and it's more of a household nomenclature. But the 1042 is essentially the same thing. I take I take the proceeds of the sale from the ESOP and I put it into replacement property. And, and, and as long as I leave it in that replacement property, I can I can kick the the tax bill down the road for as long as necessary. Um, so in this particular case, when you know when somebody does a 1031 on a piece of real estate, they're going from one piece of real estate to another. However, when right. you sell an, when you sell via an ESOP transaction, the replacement property is any US stock or bond. So our investors can just take the proceeds from the sale of the ESOP, stick that money into their brokerage account. Make sure it's invested, you know, in accordance with the, the 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 requirements of U.S. stocks or bonds, and defer their tax bill indefinitely. Yeah, that's that's pretty neat. I think a lot of people are are pretty familiar with with how the 1031 works, and in this case, the QRP QRP or the qualified replacement property is, as you said, just stocks and bonds, which kind of allows you to do uh, yeah, I mean, whatever that's, you that's want. It. Uh, pretty much anything you want. Yeah, you can be yeah. uh, about anywhere you want on the the risk return spectrum there. Um, so that gives you um, not a tax free, but essentially it defers the taxes. Um, mm-hmm. If there's a, a capital gain, uh, presumably you roll up these companies and, and you hope for a, a capital gain on the exit there. And then your investors are able to defer that capital gain. And are they able to eventually, is it the same step up, uh, step up in basis at, at death potentially? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, 
Uh, it works the same way as all other assets do right now at death. You still get that step up at basis and, you know, provides a very efficient uh, tax planning opportunity for your CPA and your tax attorneys and estate attorneys um, when, when you're looking at this type of investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the individual investors in your fund are able to make that that election. Is that right? It's not something that you're doing at the fund level and they're going along with you so they can kind of take yeah. it in whichever direction they want to go. Yeah, it's the, each shareholder gets to make their own decision, and it, and it, it's not an all or nothing, Michael. They they can do you know if they wanted to take half the money and do a ten forty two, and the other half they wanted to pay sure. taxes on it. Um, they can absolutely do that. They can reinvest a portion of the proceeds, and the new you know art funds will be you know each year there will be a sequential fund, and so if they wanted to use that as the tax offset vehicle, they 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 could do do another investment back into art. So. There's a lot of different planning strategies that are available with with tools like this. Yeah, I, I love this, Steve. It's it's creative and it's uh, flexible, and you're kind of pulling from you've got the the real estate piece of it, the historical preservation easement piece of it, and then some operating businesses as well, uh, and and ESOPs and 1042 elections. Um, I, I want to jump into one other thing that we we talked about. Um, you've you've mentioned to me how you can use this framework or this strategy. Uh, what's essentially uh, what's a, a free Roth conversion. Um, mm-hmm. can you explain kind of that that concept because I thought that was really interesting as well. For I'm sure our listeners, they're they're the wheels are turning thinking about how they can use this. Um, and I think this was one really interesting use case that that we discussed. Yeah, so this is one that one of our CPAs actually uh, kind of you know brought to us, and we said, yeah, yeah you know, this would be a great way to use it, and. So, you know, let's say somebody had a half a million dollars of AGI, um, but they, they, they have a couple million dollars in qualified accounts and um, they're, they're nearing retirement, but, but they still have a long enough time horizon that a Roth conversion makes sense to them, obviously. Um, so so they, they want to get the money to Roth, but they've been hesitant to do it because they're already in a high tax bracket and doing a Roth conversion today would just add to their tax liabilities. and. You know, it, it just never penciled out for them. Well, using ARC, you can do a half a million dollar Roth conversion in the same year that you have a half a million dollars of ordinary income, and that'll push your total income up to a million dollars a year. But the investment into ARC can actually offset their income by 50%, bringing them back down to the original half a million dollars. So Really, what they're doing is they're doing a half a million dollar Roth conversion for the year, doubling their income, and then cutting it back in half by making an investment into ARC. And so the investment into ARC, you know, over time will pro- pro- provide them with you know investment returns and you know the the, the liquidation at the end of the, the holding period, which is you know about five and a half years. And that's all essentially, you know, found money that they would use, you know, to to pay their tax liabilities. So whether they take a distribution from their Roth conversion, or they pay the taxes with other money, or they make the investment into ARC, you know, with with other assets, it's there's a lot of ways the client can slice that pie to 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 figure out what's in their best interest. But uh, again, when you talk about estate planning and and just you know tax mitigation planning in general. Uh, it's a phenomenal tool for people to have at their disposal. Absolutely. So let me ask you, Steve, who, who are, who's your typical investor? Um, is it, it's high net worth individuals or who's, who's kind of best suited for, for this type of product? 
Yeah. So uh, it's high, high tax earners, right? So mm-hmm. depending on what state you live in, that might be a different threshold. But generally speaking, our investors are north of a half a million dollars of, of household income. Um, you know, I'd say the vast majority of them tend to be in that million to two million range. Um, or it's somebody that's having a liquidity event, right? Whether they're, mm-hmm. you know, selling a company, selling a piece of real estate, they had, you know, you know, stock options that, that vested. Um, you know, it's usually one or those other somebody with some kind of a big tax event that they 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 weren't really expecting, or somebody who has a you know a very strong income that that year after year is just you know paying forty, fifty, sixty, you know, well not not quite sixty yet, but forty to fifty percent in in taxes uh, yeah. per year. Those are our typical investors. Yeah, if you're in a high tax state, um, California, I'm in Oregon. Um, you can get. Yep. Uh, right up to, or even a little bit north of fifty percent, I believe. So, yeah, <laughs> we're not at yep. sixty yet, but um, <laughs> wouldn't surprise me if we are yeah. at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I think New, I think New York City is getting close to sixty. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, well, Steve, this has been. I love talking about this. I love nerding out about you know, as the name of the podcast suggests. I love hearing yeah. about these tax efficient investment strategies. Um, I think this is you know is is so creative. I like that in a way it's uh, it's conservative too. You mentioned that you guys try to stay under that that two and a half threshold just to make sure that you're uh, kind of limiting limiting the risk there, um, and have taken a piece of the tax code where where part of it was cracked down on, the other part of it was essentially blessed. So you know, lean into yeah. lean into what's being uh, what's being allowed and and kind of extended and and encouraged even so. Um, I think this is is really neat and, and really creative. Um, well, tell us, Steve, where can can listeners or viewers who want to learn more about about Arc and about your strategies here? Where do they go? Where do they find out more about you? Yeah, appreciate it. So, so thanks for the comments. We 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 are very excited about this. We we think this is a great strategy for years to come. And and so, if anybody wants to learn more, they can go to our website, which is uh, arclp fund. So arclp fund. And uh, we, we have a lot of information there. There's also uh, on our website, there's a link to the actual investor portal where they can get in, you know, kind of behind the, the curtain and, you know, download all the PPM and all the, the fund documents and kind of see some of the assets that we have currently under contract. And then they can always uh, email um, just our, if they have generic questions, um, they can email investors at arclp.fund or they can email myself directly, uh, steve at arclp.fund. Okay, that's great. We'll, we'll put all that in the show notes as, uh, as well, the link and the, the the email information that Steve just mentioned. Um, Steve, anything to mention in, in closing here before we wrap up? Uh, the only other thing I would mention is the fund will probably close towards the end of October. So if there there are any folks that are interested for 2023 tax planning, um, you, you know, sooner the better. Um, we are getting down to the wire here. Um, but other than that, I appreciate you having us on and, um, you know, lo- looking forward to, you know, working with you guys here in the future and, you know, seeing where we can take this, uh, you know, tax kind of efficient real estate investing strategy. Yeah, I love it. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, and I'm, I'm sure you did, would love a review or a rating uh, on Apple or Spotify. We'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, and Steve, thanks for joining me today. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Michael.
That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.